Steve Went joins me along with Dan Besbris. Steve, who we talked about Bad News Bears last week, he is the voice of the Inland Empire 66ers who are currently dormant. Dan Besbris is the editor slash publisher of hoopball.com, hoop-ball.com, which is an NBA and fantasy blog. Obviously, the NBA's not playing, and so Dan's got some free time as well, although less than you would think because he and his wife, congratulations, just had their second child. So uh, hopefully you're hang, hanging in there, Dan. Yeah, we're we're a little sleepy. I, everybody that talks about how bored they are right now, I'm like, you guys want to watch a toddler for like eight or nine hours a day? You you won't, you won't be bored anymore. Yeah. yeah, kids, but you won't be bored. <laughs> Can you Zoom babysit? Yeah, he he has a Zoom preschool class, but that's only a half an hour every day. The other the rest of the day is just us uh, zooming around. I don't know. That's bad wordplay. We're we're hanging in there. Thank you guys. Thank you. All right, let's jump right into it. The Fugitive, the 1993 classic starring Harrison Ford, among others. Um, and I just watched it again last night, and it is one of those thrillers. You know, the film industry changed a lot in the 90s. The 90s was kind of a heyday for independence, but it also, in turn, kind of changed how big tentpole movies went. And the, the the Fugitive was a thriller which was released in August of 1993, but still ended up being the third best uh, movie in terms of finances. It grossed the third most of any movie in 1993. Um, and, you know, I, just such a classic. And it really kind of starts with Harrison Ford, obviously opposite Tommy Lee Jones. So he and Tommy Lee Jones kind of carry the movie. Um, and it was a thriller that is really appreciated even almost 30 years after the fact because it was kind of one of the last of its kind in the sense that it was really more about two guys matching wits in a in a great arena, which is the greater Chicago area, um, based on the TV show from the 1960s. It traces uh, Dr. Richard Kimball is wrongly accused of murdering his wife and because of an ax, a bus accident, he escapes transfer from uh, the Cook County Board of Corrections, and then he's got to be tracked down by U.S. Marshal Samuel Gerard. Dan and Steve, I'll leave the rest up to you. I'll lay it out there for you guys. Yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll jump in. I'll jump in first on this one. I just the I'm going to start with just one quote that stuck out to me as kind of fun in the middle of the movie, and it was when Tommy Lee Jones tells one of his assistants. Don't let them give you shit for your ponytail. I don't know why that line stuck out to me. And there was one at the end, too, but we can probably get to that point. But there was just something unique and authentic about the the way the dialogue was crafted for the two main characters that wasn't it was unusual. And it was just unusual enough to make you smile, but not so unusual that you felt like you were watching something cheap and weird. Am I nuts? You may be nuts, but not in regard to this. I actually <laughs> believe it. Believe it or not. Noah and Gerard remind me a little bit of how you and Steve interact on Twitter with with Steve <laughs> kind of being the Tommy Lee Jones character and you kind of being the character of Noah with the floppy hair and the ponytail. <laughs> well, that's just because we've been quarantined and can't get a haircut. Yeah, but I don't bargain. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think you're right. I, I mean. You know, you talk about movies being carried by stars or sometimes they're star vehicles. I think they, they talk about that. Um, but I don't think Harrison Ford gets 
a ton of credit for being a good actor. I think he gets credit for being a movie star, but I think he's a good actor. And, and, and he's, you know, you, you know, sometimes there's guys like Tom Hanks, everyone just universally loves because no matter what character he's playing, there's kind of that his charisma comes through as a likable guy. I think Harrison Ford's a cool guy and, and a likable guy. And, and so he comes from it, that angle. Uh, and so I think you like Richard Kimball. I think he has just kind of a, a, a kindness about him. And Tommy Lee Jones, you can see exactly what you're talking about. The, the whole don't let him give you shit about your ponytail. That's him kind of riding a guy, but he's doing it from a place of I, I care about this guy. You know, I, I like this guy. Um, so they both are very, very likable, but they also, what you said, matching wits, they're both incredibly competent. It's not like some yeah. dullard out, you know, he's not, he's now outlasting Barney Fife. Like these are two <laughs> yeah. heavyweights, you know, th- this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, Foreman and Ali or something like that. This is two heavyweights who are both at the kind of at their best. It's very fun to watch. I, I agree with uh, everything you guys have said about these guys. It's it's very it's Victor Hugo almost. It's almost, you know, Valjean and Javert from from Les Miserables and going back to talking about the way thrillers change, you know, Harrison Ford at that point, I think he did a couple more Indiana Jones movies after that, but he'd kind of outgrown the Han Solo Indiana Jones kind of persona where he's kind of the rogue or the rapscallion and he'd kind of evolved into other roles. He'd done a thriller called Frantic. He'd done um when was uh, Air Scott Force One? Sorry? When was Air Force One chronological? <laughs> that was afterwards. That was afterwards. <laughs> He did, and he did the thriller. It's I'm, it's escaping me. The Scott Turow thriller, um, where he played an attorney. It was another another one right after Frantic. Um, why is it eluding me? It was a legal kind of a legal title. Um, so this was kind of the third in his series. So clearly he kind of had figured out what he was doing. Not that he wasn't good in those other two. Presumed innocent was the title. Yes. He wasn't. Not that he wasn't good in the other two. But this kind of, I think he really hit it out of the park. It was kind of the year three. You know. Chris Bryant, year three, MVP kind of a performance for Harrison Ford in the city of Chicago. And uh, I'll start with one of the things, and I'll let you guys comment on it. I really thought how they used the city was pretty cool. In, in, in particular, you know, there, there are different ways people are familiar with the city. You know, Dan and I both live in the same city, kind of apart from each other. And I'm sure your familiarity with the city of Los Angeles is different than my familiarity with the city, being that you kind of grew up in the area. But um, uh, Richard Kimball knows his Chicago and Sam Gerard knows his Chicago and therein let the game of cat and mouse begin. Right. Yeah. Plus, the there was that whole sequence where they're analyzing his payphone call to his attorney and uh, a couple of guys in the room say, that's an L. And, you know, Tommy Lee Jones says, what's the difference between an L and some other train? Right. And then they end up pulling out all the audio hearing a public address announcement, and at the end of that scene, he's kind of like, all right, yeah, fine, you guys are right, that was the L. So I thought that was kind of a cool way to work in the city as well. I don't know Chicago at all, uh, other than, you know, what people say about it and what I've seen in movies, and it's so funny because what I know about Chicago comes from The Fugitive and Blues Brothers, and they (laughs) they both absolutely celebrate, you know, they both celebrate Chicago, and when I, but when I'm watching them, they're driving on one of those bridges with kind of the grate, and I'm going, 
Well, that's definitely lower Wacker Drive, you know, that just like in Blues Brothers, and and they dropped the Picasso line, just like in Blues Brothers. I'm like, is there only a couple things that happen in Chicago? I, this is a great city, and all the Picasso it seems to be the only thing. Uh, so Harrison Ford, 51 when he shoots this, and he still did all his own stunts, which I I I, I found out, and that that was pretty cool. Even the thing of him jumping off the train. Um, they did that obviously with a with a with a well, I guess what you'd call now with the green screen, but the train the derailment they actually they actually did that that was an effect they did. Um, I guess today that would have been a CGI. That's another thing, just a choice the filmmakers made is, and I think Steve brought up the authenticity as well um, in terms of even that part of it, even the part of the movie with the effects they wanted a degree of authenticity to it, uh, and you know it's since changed. And I, a lot of the stuff that I've read about the the fugitive is it was kind of the first thriller of its kind and at the same time the last thriller of its kind because in that era of filmmaking then you know and spielberg had ushered it in with jurassic park it just became so much easier in terms of being able to do effects so now they're all looking you know really big they're looking really high on what level effects can we do and what can we do whereas i thought in this even the the kind of the crazy scenes they all served this rivalry between Gerard and Richard Kimball, which I thought was really great and, and really organic as well. Yeah, well said. I mean, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to add on that front. I think you can, as a viewer, you can feel the difference when, the, when things are created with that level of care. I think if you're going to a more modern set of movies, the, the Nolan Batman movies did a lot of that sort of by hand stuff, at least the first two. I think they might have used more CGI in the third one. But I know they did a lot of their own real effects. And I, I, I feel like there's, and, and maybe I'm overstating it, but as an audience, I think you can, I think you notice a difference. There's something that feels more real about that. Uh, I will say that there, the, the scene in The Fugitive where the bus rolls down the hill is a little bit goofy. It, I, it looked like a toy bus. I don't know if it was. Maybe you, can, maybe you looked that up and you have the answer on that one. I, it might have been a real one. It just uh, it didn't look like it. But the other stuff, you, you really felt like the train was coming down your throat. The the scene in the tunnels is one that everybody remembers. And I'm going back to a point, Gazal, you made a while back. I watched part of The Fugitive with my wife last night, and even she was just like, is he just Javert? And I was like, no, come on, they're different things. Because Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones, eventually he decides to care about the, the person that he's following. It doesn't break him. He just smiles at the end of the movie and says, don't tell anybody, basically, that I that I ended up caring about you. So there's there was that breaking point. Yeah, the I, I believe that the the wreck the of a the train engine and and the bus are like a some sort of tourist attraction where they shot the movie. Now, it's like a roadside tourist attraction. They just <laughs> kept it. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's a miniature bus next to a train uh, engine, but uh <laughs> Uh, but there's another, you know, you talk about things being real. Like there's a scene uh, uh, when they're at the tunnel scene where it's kind of to show how doggedly uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Sam Gerard's character, uh, character is going after him. And he hops out of the helicopter before it's fully landed. <laughs> and if you watch, I'm like, Tommy Lee Jones almost lost his foot in that and that was real i'm like wow they're going after it here but that wasn't some something from a, a you know a green screen i mean 
he, he literally almost had the, the little thing on the bottom of a helicopter. You know that thing? Well, it almost took off his foot. Uh, so the two, we, we referenced them both. They're two really big set pieces right at the beginning of the movie. So obviously they tell, you know, we see him go into trial and we they show the murder of wife played. Celia Ward is fantastic. She's only in the movie for about 11 minutes, but she is fantastic in what little screen time she gets in the movie. So got got to give her a little bit of a shout. Um, so we see the murder taking place. So we kind of have all the information we need as the audience as he's going to trial. And then obviously he's convicted and sentenced to death. Um, and, um, so the first set piece obviously is the piece in the bus when they're transferring the prisoners, uh, and the, the, to, to death row in essence. And the, the bus says Dan and Steve have both talked about it, the bus flips. What I love about this is this is our kind of first look at Kimball now, He's, you know, we had the great, we had the great Harrison Ford scene where he's first accused of the murder by the police. He's in the interrogation room, and apparently that was not scripted, or at least Harrison Ford's part weren't scripted. They wanted him to, re- they wanted him to react to what the actors who were playing the police officers were saying. And there's the great line that I tweeted at both you guys: "How dare you!" Um, when he's first, you know, uh, told, "Hey." We think you're the one who did it, and it's the you know it's the slow burn Harrison Ford. You, you think that I killed my wife, that I crushed her skull, that I shot her, and all that stuff. Um, but in the when when the bus crashes, uh, Richard Kimball, the character now, he can't help but be a doctor, right? He's going to get that guy out of out of the out of the bus before the train slams into it, and it comes into play when. Um, and I always laugh because years later, you know, it's the guy from Office Space right. who's kind yeah. of yeah. who's uh, who's uh, who's the who's the who's the yeah who's the sheriff or the the sheriff's assistant or whatever. Talking it's about, funny, yeah, it's funny because he's good with customers. <laughs> so he didn't jump, he didn't jump to any conclusions, but he just kind of made up the story. But it just shows us the character of both people that even though Richard Kimball wrongly accused, he's not going to ever. Uh, not be a doctor, you know, he's going to, he, he's going to uh, aspire to that oath that he has taken, regardless of the fact whether he's trying to escape for his life or not. And that's our first, as an audience, our first peek in, okay, this is who this guy is. So despite everything, despite the fact that he's headed to death row for a crime he didn't commit, he's not going to shirk his duty. And that's kind of the first, you know, we can check off, you know, uh, hey, okay, so I kind of like Richard Kimball now. About 15 minutes into the movie. Without question. Can I, I and I'm, I know I'm jumping off the, the linear course here, but uh, it, you know what struck me? At, I tried to put myself in the shoes of the, of the police officer that he, or the, the corrections agent that he saved, who he then sees being unloaded from the ambulance at the hospital. Okay. If, I'm, if I'm that corrections officer, I, don't I just assume that I'm hallucinating at that point? Like, <laughs> he he was very he was lucid like he called in a tip i think i just saw richard kimball getting out of my ambulance if i was that guy i'd be like i've been under a rock for like seven hours i think i saw someone that resembled richard kimball without a beard at the hospital they just took me to i'd assume i'm losing my mind now that's a good question that's a good question dan because i think the way they tell it is that he thinks he saw kimball and there's an ambulance missing so right if the ambulance if the ambulance is not missing do they make that jump or do they say, OK, this guy's this guy's hallu- I mean, and I, you're right. I think you're right, by the way, Dan. But I'm just kind of swishing that around in my head to say, OK, what's the logical break there? Because you're right now. 
That said, and I'll turn this over to Steve, I think even that little sliver, Sam Gerard, it's in his character that he's going to go, he's going to go seek that lead out regardless of how slim it may be. Yeah, well, and let's remember the guy gave the tip while he had a, a puncture wound in his epigastric region. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 okay. uh. How could he know that from just looking at his face or what's the line? <laughs> I think that's exactly it. How do you tell that by looking at his face? Uh, I, yeah, no, I mean that, it, that is, I think for a lot of us in our lives, you know, there's more nuance. We have nuance and <laughs> when we're dealing with people, there's nuance and it can obviously backfire on us, but we are very much, I think, drawn to characters and stories that are driven and single-minded and that's exactly what sam gerard is so you're 100 percent right if he gets a lead he's not going to be like ah, well you know the odds are against that that's he's that's just not who he is he's going to go after you're 100 percent right so uh i i think that i think that you have two single-minded guys here one guy's trying to clear himself one guy's trying to get the job done and that's what you know causes the the uh, the appeal of those two guys? Are there times during the movie, and this I had trouble pinpointing these, where we saw Sam Gerard's character making that transition from, you know, exclusively chasing to sort of following the breadcrumbs? Because Gazal, you said it earlier, he's not an idiot. He's clearly a sharp guy. Every call he makes is right in the movie. But there, I feel like there are moments, and I think I missed them watching it in a daze, where you start to see him go, wait a minute, there's there's more going on here than me just chasing down a guy. Because, and the movie even alludes to it with him saying he doesn't care. I didn't, I didn't kill my wife. I don't yeah. care. And yeah. then, but, you know, by the end he does. But I don't. I feel like there were steps along the way that I missed watch, even rewatching the movie. Well, let's go. You know, Billy Wilder always says, if you tr- have trouble at the end, go back to the beginning. <laughs> Give me your your guys' assessment of, I think Sam. You know, it's it's we did uh, we did a baseball movie, me and Steve. But but going back to a, another baseball movie, Bill Durham, Sam Gerard definitely announces his presence with authority. When Tommy Lee Jones comes onto the screen for the first time, we really get the essence of who he was because he comes right into a scene and then he's almost dismissed. Hey, we got this under control. And then you see they don't have it under control. And just like the scene when we see Richard Kimball save the guy in the bus, now we know, okay, this guy, this guy's the real deal. This guy is going to be the guy that tracks whomever down that needs to get tracked down. When he comes on and, and kind of pulls the pants down on the, the sheriff who's running the scene, but is not running the scene because he's, he's gone off the word of one guy. And they, they do a little bit of a perimeter search and they come up with the, with the empty uh, leg irons. I think they do a little faint of to what Dan's talking about a little bit earlier where, uh, you know, all of a sudden they're like, why is he going back to Chicago Memorial? Why, you know, why is he trying to investigate this thing? And so he goes to the, the, the jail and, and to find Clive Driscoll, a person who has the prosthetic arm. And so you start, you're starting to say, okay, well, this would cause a reasonable doubt, right? Uh, maybe we should investigate this f- further. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, OK, this could be where Sam Gerard is is having that epiphany. But maybe everything's not on the up and up. But then he tries to shoot Richard Kimball in the head through the protective glass. So yes. maybe he's not quite on board yet. He's still in that that uh, bloodhound mode. Um, I, I think 
I think that they set up a wonderful uh, kind of uh, creation and a wonderful uh, villain in the background that we all can get behind and that opens the eyes for Sam Gerard, and that's a pharmaceutical company. And I think we all can get behind <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, let, let's not let's not get ahead. What I what I what I loved also when Sam Gerard arrives, his team arrives, you know. Yeah. And we already talked about Noah, and obviously uh, Joe Panellini was fantastic as Cosmo. Yeah. Daniel Roebuck is part of that team yeah. as well. So that's the cool thing. Also, okay, now Richard Kimball has escaped, but we see the team that is assembled behind Sam Gerard, and as formidable as Tommy Lee Jones is as the Gerard character. His team, they all kind of seem to have their roles. I, I just I'm, I, I love that uh, Joe Pantoliano finally has a role where he's not like the late movie turncoat. That's really refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> Joey Pants gets some love in this one. Maybe it's because it's set in Chicago. So, yeah, it gets his face bashed in at the end. But, you know, in general, good guy. We could root for him. He didn't betray anybody. That was that was fun to see. I don't I don't have a whole lot to add to the. Uh, the team. I feel like the team actually gets even more done in the the lesser known sequel. Although I know we're not talking about that on uh, on today's podcast. <laughs> right? Wasn't that great? Um, yeah. I just to me the the team and and I think maybe I'm underrepresenting them, but it was a lot of setting up how Gerard interacts with his people. I thought it was uh, om- they were there largely for his character development. At least in this movie. Yeah, they, I, you know, they, yeah, they, you had the, well, first off, you had every third guy had the perfect 90s uh, uh, Bears talk uh, mustache. And so <laughs> that was phenomenal. That was like, how do we make this authentic Chicago? The only thing that was missing was like mustard in the mustache. But, uh, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, there was, there was, there was, the the Cosmo character um, that could he had enough kind of cred that he could go back and forth a little bit with Sam Gerard. Right, and, and that's then, why he was that's why Joey Pants was cast apparently because oh, really? they wanted they wanted one of the guys to be able to to kind of chop it up a little bit with Tommy Lee Jones and he was the guy they chose to do that with. Yeah, and then you have the guy who always has a smart aleck r- response, but when push comes to shove, he's going to go back into the background. All those things, I think. They're kind of stock characters, but I think everyone did it well, and I agree with Dan that it, it they serve uh, the story well by allowing it to illuminate uh, Sam Gerard. I mean, yeah, they draw him out, and, and you make a great point, Dan, because what are we going to do? Have Tommy Lee Jones there talking to himself? No. He needs to be talking to people, berating people, and you see how he treats the various people. And it's a scene you referenced already, Steve, the I Don't Bargain scene is a perfect example of that. But – I do want to get your comments on the tunnel. I mean, the tunnel scene is the classic scene. They spoofed it in The Simpsons of all things. Now, I've read that there actually was supposed to be like an interplay between the two. Is it going to be the first big monologue between Sam Gerard and Harrison Ford? And I think it was Harrison Ford decided that he shouldn't really say much. He's like, hey, I'm trying to escape. I shouldn't really say much. And obviously the scene worked out beautifully. And it's one of the classic scenes in, in cinema from the nineties, definitely. But I think if you look back, one of the more classic scenes that Harrison Ford has done in the course of his career. Steve, you want to, you want to jump in on this one first? I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm taking the, the first response. <laughs> yeah. I feel that way too, Dan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, first off, is it really that easy to get into a dam? 
<laughs> like this, you know, I mean, we've had some security upgrades in our nation in the ensuing years from that, uh, right. from that movie. So maybe not, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I think the tenor of that is perfect. I totally, and, and it's interesting, you know, every time you hear stories about Harrison Ford there, you'll hear stories about, well, Harrison Ford in the movie said, well, what if we just did this? It's like Harrison Ford's made a lot of movies a lot better than they were yeah. if, if he hadn't made these suggestions. But, uh, it, yeah, what, what are you going to talk about? Are you kidding? You're freezing cold. You're dripping wet. You're running for your life. You, you got a gun pointed at you. Both of you have a gun pointed at you. It's not exactly uh, the time to drop back for a soliloquy and you know, and, and wait for the Greek chorus. That's nonsense. This is, that was great. That was heart pounding. You had to make split decisions. You're running for your life, literally. And so, uh, you know, from that, you definitely, uh, that, that was well done, obviously. And, and then, you know, both of them are in points of vulnerability, massive vulnerability in that both of them could have pulled the trigger and didn't. Uh, but then you see a guy who's literally, I mean, his back's not against the wall. It's against a waterfall, but that's how desperate he is. He'll, he'll take the header out. Yeah, it was brilliant. I I didn't know, I didn't know that there was supposed to be a monologue there. Um, if if there, I'm trying to put my mind in the, created in my head that there was one and it seems like it would have been a really clunky fit. To have yeah. one of them, like what happens to the three or four other people that are also in these tunnels that you don't have that long before the cavalry arrives. This isn't this isn't like a cartoon movie where the, the good guy reveals all of his secrets or the bad guy tells his this master plan. Uh, it was brilliant the way it was done. And if that was Harrison Ford, that's just another check plus for um <laughs> the, the, the president well, and, the, yeah. and the i don't care the i don't care line is Brilliant. the reason is yeah and it, it's awesome and it's also the reason why he decides to jump off a dam because he maybe he thinks he can reason with this guy this uh lawman you know hey well you know i've done i, I haven't done you know i was wrong and he goes well, i don't care and it's like well all right i guess yeah option b <laughs> see ya. i'll yeah. jump off yeah. a bridge yeah. He went Peter Pan on the thing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> great reaction to it. And, that, and then again, in the aftermath of him, we see the expertise of Sam Gerard come out. Um, what's the, it's like, he's probably dead. Well, then he should be easy to catch. You know, there's <laughs> another classic line from, uh, from Tommy Lee Jones in that situation. Um, so I, I don't know if it was in that sequence. At some point in the filming, Harrison Ford tore his ligament. And uh, he ended up just finishing the movie. That's why he limps in some of the other the other scenes because he didn't have the surgery till after the movie was over. But you know, obviously, as Steve talked about, what an awesome scene to jump off the waterfall. But the cool thing about it is, okay, now now Richard Kimball has escaped, and what's his route going to be? And obviously, we know he goes back to Chicago, and that to me is just a formidable part of the film in that he's kind of reintegrating himself. But why is he going back to Chicago, right? Because at that point, the movie could end. He goes down in the water. They think he's dead. Well, now's the time to run and get away. That's why I made the parallel to Les Miserables because there's a reason he needs to go back. And the reason he needs to go back, obviously, is to clear his name and find all this information. But, uh, you know, we see him kind of through the woods. They send the hounds in to kind of track him through the woods. But he manages to get out of the woods and reintegrate himself or, uh, or, or you know, 
get back to the city is the key. And again, it's it's you got I think Dan brought it up. It's the timeliness is, you know, obviously it's pre 9-11 and it's before everything was solved with a cell phone and a laptop, which I think makes the movie better. 100%. But, um, you know, we see now Sam. I'm sorry. We see Richard Kimball kind of re-ingratiate himself into a world that's familiar, but he can't get too familiar because obviously now he is, as the title indicates, a fugitive on the run. Well, I got to give Steve credit at this moment, because when when Dr. Kimball goes back to his hospital, he disguises himself as who, Steve? That's only the that's second time around. The first time he's just kind of there by, by on his own. You know, it's it's the long game for Richard Kimball, right? Right. Yes, he, he does. <laughs> he, he makes a couple of visits, but then he becomes Desmondo Jose Ruiz. <laughs> <laughs> That seems fantastic. I was I was ready for it after you sent the note in our our uh, our Twitter DM. Um, but hey, Gazal, another point that to what you were talking about earlier in the movie is he goes away from his scheduled task to cure a kid. He saves a kid's life in the hospital. Yeah, uh, later in the movie, uh, he does that. Getting back in, I'm trying to think. So uh, the the first scene we see is when he first gets back to the hospital. He finds himself in a room with a guy who I guess is in a coma, right? There's the old guy oh, who's there the in a coma. Yeah, the that, that's the weakest scene to me. Yeah. Okay. I, what, that, what, that nurse is horrible at her job. Right. Is this guy, I mean, she's just talking to him and giving him food in a table that's five feet away from him and, and, and talking about, oh, you're real thirsty. Like, maybe he's sleeping. I don't know. But he's got a neck brace on. He looks like he's comatose. And I'm thinking, this is very n- kind of negligent care. Yeah, <laughs> that's a tough. That is a tough one to buy. <laughs> and Harrison Ford joins the list of characters that we see in cinema or TV. He eats the egg on the toast. You know, he kind of pl- pl- plops the egg onto the toast <laughs> and eats them together. So it gives you wow. a little bit of insight into Richard Kimball. Yeah, and and well, and it was finger licking good, if you recall, because he hadn't eaten yeah. in however long. Uh, he also, you know. He is in a hurry, but he still scissors down the beard. <laughs> That's right. Shaving. Which, if I'm on the run, I, I, I actually, from time to time, I'll grow a beard. And when it gets to Richard Kimball length, and now that it has the white in front, too, that's that's when I get rid of it. Um, I, I can't maintain a beard. I just grow it to Richard Kimball, and then I get rid of it. Um, but, yeah, if I'm, if I'm, if time's of the essence, I... He took some time to get that thing knocked down. Well, it would have pinched. It really would have pinched if he hadn't cut it first. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, I'm not worried about the, the comfort at that point. <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. It, that was one of the, another incongruous thing because I was wondering, like, man, like, is, is, is it that much of a shift for him to, to cut shave the beard off? And in the early scene when he's riding with Seal uh, Ward, he talks about, oh, I looking like a waiter, and I'm guessing. That's a joke somebody made on the set, which they incorporated into 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 the into his dialogue, um, because really, I guess aside from disguising himself, the beard doesn't really play much of a, you know, much of a much of a role in it. It's just he has to look different. You know, the the uh, the accused Richard Kimball has to look different from the guy who's running away, I guess. And yeah. so I guess he sheds the beard and now he's really Harrison Ford. And they question him in the hallway and he, he makes reference to it. He said, oh, every time I look in the mirror. 
They describe, hey, this is the fugitive. He looks like this. You've seen anybody like that? Well, every day when I look in the mirror, well, except for the beard, it's kind of like a it, – it's almost kind of a ham-fisted little wink to the to us as the audience outside of the realm of the actual story. Yeah, that I, – I don't know what to make of all that. I Something about Harrison Ford made that goofy sequence acceptable or palatable to me. I'm not sure yeah. that – no, I I'm didn't not mind sure. it. I didn't mind it. I'm just it, compared to the other parts of the scene. It's it's almost even though you're you're it, there's still that frantic pace to it. It's almost the only like breath in the movie, if you think yeah, about it. Like because that thing just hits the gas pedal and goes. I mean, he's already on the bus to prison, and they still have the opening credits going. He's his wife's been murdered. He's been interrogated. He's been convicted in a court of law, and he's on his way to the pokey. And they're still saying, like, you know, who was the lighting director? Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, John Wooden says, be quick, but don't hurry. They get everything in. Yeah, they uh, do. What's interesting is I was reading there were six editors for this movie. Six editors uh, oh. put the movie together. So that may, it makes a lot of sense in that you're right. There really isn't a lot of fat in terms of the, the, the narrative. And there was a bunch of – and we'll get into it later. There's a bunch of storylines that had to be truncated or just downright cut out of it um, as, as, you know, as we move forward in, in the chronology of, of the movie. And so now we get another set piece. You know, so we've already talked about the, the, uh, the one corrections officer who gets wheeled into the hospital and sees Kimball – Ward gets back to Tommy Lee Jones, and then there's an ambulance missing, and it's Richard Kimball has stolen the ambulance, and so now we get the helicopter and the ambulance on the highway trying to get out of Chicago. So he's gotten back into Chicago, but now that they know who he is, he's got to get in the ambulance and get out of Chicago. Well, I yeah. think that was that was still on the lam. He was that was before he got into Chicago, wasn't it? That was in that was before the dam, wasn't it? Oh yeah, we 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 jumped ahead. That was that leads us to the dam, I believe. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So no, what right. I'm thinking of then is so now he's back in Chicago, and then it's oh it's um so the so when when they're when they get off the bus, there's that one other convicted, the bald yes. guy. Yes, yes. So escapes. they do a good job with that. The the where you see Harrison Ford back in Chicago or, or or near the outskirts, and he's walking in the snow, and he gets picked up by a, a good Samaritan that had enough of a come hither look that you're thinking there's something going on. So woman picks him up hitchhike, a hitchhiker basically in the car, another, another, you know, and yeah. today he, he'd just call a lift. A, re um, a relic and, of the, he's trust, trust in a human on the side of the road. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we cut to, there's a, the fugitive is holed up in Chicago. So that's, what are the odds of that, that both, people on that well i guess because it was the closest city huh they'd both come back to chicago i guess that makes a little bit of sense and then we really get to see tommy lee jones at work as sam gerard and i'll leave it to you steve you 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 threw out i don't bargain take us through that scene oh well yeah they're <laughs> they're speaking of over the top uh they are <laughs> they are u.s marshals and not actors they uh, all are doing their best to overact as homeless people or, or mail carriers or whatever. Uh, but they barge into this house and, you know, you're, you're following this thing in a linear fashion and you've, for, you have forgotten about uh, the other escapee. And so you're thinking Richard Kimball's about to get, uh, get pinched. And all of a sudden you realize that it's uh, the other uh, fugitive, if you will. Uh, and, it's intense, and uh, so in the scene, obviously, 
Uh, it doesn't go according to plan. Uh, the, the other fugitive grabs uh, Newman and basically is, is trying to barter his life against Newman's. And Sam Gerard slides the gun basically level with the wall and pulls the trigger and shoots right behind Newman's head and kills the guy. Uh, and then the coup de grace in the scene is when the, the, the girlfriend of this guy or the how, whatever her relationship with it is, is one night saying, I don't know. Uh, but when she's just screaming, which to me seems like a, a wildly appropriate response to what just happened, he just goes, shut up. Yeah, that's the best. He just drops a shut up and keeps walking. <laughs> That, that part gets me every damn time. I, I laughed out loud rewatching that because yes. I, had, I had forgotten that scene. It is kind of, I don't know, that scene catches me by surprise every single time because it is this weird divergence where you're like, okay, yeah, this is happening. Don't you, do you guys think the movie could have just happened without that entire sequence? I mean, it wouldn't have been as, that sequence was interesting and fun, but I don't know that I, I don't feel like I, it moved the, the plot forward in any Real you know, way. I actually believe that it did serve the, serve the overall yeah. narrative in the sense that it gives us the relationship between him and Noah Newman. You know, it gives us the relationship between Sam Gerard and Noah Newman and kind of shows us that, OK, this guy really is steely determined. Right. Because we see him. It's kind of business as usual with him. He's making these wisecracks. He's obviously really good at his job. But this shows us, hey, this is personal. OK. You know, and then I think they the they they pay it off well in the um in the call when Sam Gerard takes the call. Well, who can you blame? You can blame me. I'm yeah, the one that shot him. him. He tried to kill one of my kids. My kids. We see what the what he feels the relationship is between he and, and Newman. Yeah, that makes sense. And even when he's even when he's telling him I don't bargain, I think he puts a jacket around him. Yeah, after, he, he right? puts a yeah he puts the jacket around him. So he kicks him in the in the ass, and then you know, and then then shows some care for him, um, you know, who puts it right over his now non-functioning right ear. Um, <laughs> but he, the, I, I actually think that this does serve even greater purposes that, uh, two guys escaped. It's his investigation. It, it doesn't mean because he's going after one, he's has forgotten about the other one. We forgot right, right. about the other one, Yeah. but I think it's more of a, it's, it's, it is yet another illustration of how single-minded Sam Gerard is that, that, you know, while we have may have forgotten about uh, the guy who was supposed to be good, uh, he hasn't, the law is going to get you regardless. And it's just a reminder that Richard Kimball is in hot water, that this guy isn't giving up on anything. There's nothing going unchecked. Uh, even if the viewer doesn't know, uh, that he's checking it. Well, now we finally meet, um, Mr. Kimball takes us into the world of uh, his colleague, his friend, uh, Charles Nichols, played oh. brilliantly by Jerome Crabbe, who actually Richard Jordan was originally picked to play the role, but he got ill, actually had a yeah. brain tumor, ended up passing sad. away. Yeah, hmm. uh, but Crabbe, I didn't realize that he and, and you know, what's funny is it, the only thing I really remembered him in. He was great. And it was another kind of taut thriller. And there is the Harrison Ford connection was uh, what Hunt for Red October. He yes. Was, Jeffrey yes. Van Pelt, I think, yes. the, the the national security advisor. And so uh, that that what a different movie it would have been. I don't know if he'd have played it with the same southern accent or, or what. Right. But right. Yeah. yeah. That, but it is sad. I mean, it's so crazy that that iconic character was almost not him. 
Like we're we're almost an hour into the movie now, and he he so he he stops Charles Nichols, and we kind of know right away that Nichols is more involved in this than we we may maybe we know, and but he's gonna help his buddy, and it's it's the old I don't know it's it's a very nineties thing where somebody tries to squeegee his car. No 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 I don't want it. And there's Richard Kimball right there, and he offers him to get into the car, but he won't get in the car. He's like no I just whatever cash you can give me. And he gives it to him. He readily surrenders it to him. Um, so we see the interaction with Harrison Ford. And then moments later, we see the interaction with Tommy Lee Jones, where they're questioning Charles Nichols because they now know that Richard Kimball is back in the city of Chicago. And he tells them that, oh, I've seen, I saw him this morning. He got me outside my tennis club. And then it is exactly, I had to go, went back and checked this, exactly an hour into the movie. Because they find out, okay, you're a doctor, you know this guy, you know that guy, and he won't help them pursue Richard Kimball. And they go back and forth about, oh, is he smart, you know? And they said, is he as smart as you, Dr. Nichols? And he says, exactly an hour into the movie, smarter. He's smarter. Put that in your back pocket. We'll get to it in a little bit. But all right, <laughs> give me give me the visceral reaction both of you had to the first, our first real encounter with one dr charles nichols steve you go ahead that's the guy from living daylights that's what i thought that's right. uh, <laughs> that's and that's that's exactly what i thought but then they do they, you know i i don't think it's subtle they're they're in kind of a gritty it seems like a gritty part of chicago you know it's the, you're under the tracks and all that and there's squeegee guys but he's also leaving the tennis club in the nice sweater and into, hopping into his forest green BMW. So I think there's an, an immediate dislike. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, t- it's tough out there. But, uh, you know, I got to get a few sets in. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the first time I saw Dr. Charles Nichols. And it's hard. It's hard to remember because now we know we've all seen it so many times that when you see his face, you're like, oh, the, I think you see him. What you see him in the earlier flashback yeah. uh, where he gives him his car keys and he asks him if he put gas in it. And he yeah, says, oh, and he says, yeah, thanks for the loaner. And he says, oh, did you put gas in it? Which is exactly what you're supposed to say. That's phenomenal. Busting your buddy's balls on that. Uh, but then he doesn't really answer the question. And I think that's maybe where you first get a little suspect. He goes, oh, yeah, there's enough in there. He didn't get gas. No. What a jerk. <laughs> what a dick. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, but I think I, the first time I saw the movie, I don't think I was paying close enough attention at this point. And I just assumed, oh, okay, guy gave Dr. Kimball some cash. Well, no, but, no, we, we think he's a friend. We, we know there's something yeah. off about him, but, I mean, he could be a friend, you know? Yeah, yeah, we all yeah. have We all have friends that are kind of from the other side of the tracks, maybe a little bit too uncomfortable outside the law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, are you suggesting that I watch this movie a second time through nefarious means? Right. <laughs> maybe, well, maybe, maybe. You can tell Lentz is squeamish immediately. That's true. Or, you know what I mean? So you're right. You're giving Richard Kimball the benefit of the doubt that he wouldn't be uh, buddies necessarily yeah, with a, a murderer. Because we've seen the one-armed man and we've seen Lentz. So, yeah, that, that, that gives the audience enough to think, you know, okay, you know, there, those are the guys right now that 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 he's looking for, and maybe Nichols is a conduit to get to them because we've all saw them at the same party. Yeah, agreed. Um, so now Nichols, 
not Nichols. No, I'm, I'm, I'm on the Nichols kick. Now Kimball has to rent a place. And he rents a place from a, from a mother-son team. And this is one thing that I didn't, you know, it took me a couple times watching the movie to really get what they were kind of getting at. Um, so it's kind of in the outskirts. So, yes, Richard Kimball is back in Chicago, but he is now having to tread uh, in an unfamiliar territory in Chicago. So even though he is of the city, the parts of Chicago now where he is going are not familiar to him. So he is a fish out of water, even back in his own city. Yeah, I um, I, I think my first reaction when I saw this was always, is it that easy to get a place to live? It's I, the 90s. It's the yeah, 90s. I guess. I, I don't know. It just all happened very fast. And I sort of I think I just sort of accepted it as, you know, fine. He found some place that was like easy to acquire. And uh, but it, well, and you, you, sort you of find out why. And you find out why you find yeah. out they're, they're, yeah. they're not asking a lot of questions. You got mm-hmm. you got you, you got the first month's rent. It's all yours. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, easy to get whatever whatever it takes kind of thing. Uh, so now he's got to go back to the hospital and this is where our friend Desmondo uh, Jose Ruiz comes in because he's got to steal. He goes, now he's looking, I think at this point he is looking in the, uh, the prosthetic limb unit, right? We've always already gone in the prosthetic limb unit at this point. And so, no, he hasn't gone in. He's seen where it is. So yeah. he knows he's got to be back at this hospital and there he's in the locker room and poor Desmondo takes a second to walk away from his locker and he gets his ID badge pilfered. <laughs> I always think about that. He's singing. He's like a happy guy, and he's gonna have to go to HR and be like, "I lost my badge," and he's scared he's gonna lose his job, you know. And it's like, you know, when I, I was fresh, I was freshly graduated from college in the '90s, and I first started working like media events, and they would give you these, they'd give you a credential in essence, you know, and they were they would say, "Hey, you give that away to somebody, you're you're done. Like we're gonna, you know, like the the permanent, we had the permanent record chat, you know." <laughs> Like, don't don't think, you know, well, you know, it's a 12 hour event. We only need you for four hours. But don't think once you walk out, you can sell this or get. And, you know, I had no clue. People, I guess, actually would sell it, you know, and some of the events you'd work were like their celebrities involved. So I guess there was some money to be made. They remember this is before everything was on the Internet. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, he makes up the, the phony ID, which ultimately is what kind of leads the the chase back to him. Um, we actually touched on it earlier. Uh, the scene where they're where, where Kimball first comes back to Chicago and they they I think Dan brought it up when they have the phone they're recording the phone calls um, and they hear this the I think it was Merchandise Mart they hear the they hear the 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 uh, the, the call from the from the elevated train that's how they know that he's back in Chicago which I thought was pretty interesting um, so there are all these kind of environmental aspects to tracking the crime, which I think is one of the great aspects of the movie, because I don't really know, like Steve, I don't really know Chicago. I've been to Chicago a couple of times when I watched the movie, when I first saw the movie, I'd never been to Chicago. So it was kind of all new to me, but you get an idea of kind of the layout of the city. You get an idea of the familiarity, both uh, Sam and Richard Kimball have of the, of that, of that city. Yeah, no doubt. It's, it's definitely a character in the movie. Well said. All right. So through a series of events, so we find out the son of the woman who has rented this room to Richard Kimball is actually a drug dealer. 
And we see the scene where he's getting busted. Of course, Richard Kimball is in the apartment. He thinks they're coming for him, and they're not. They take the kid away. And what is the first thing the kid does? He turns in Richard Kimball. Yeah, what a rat. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the heady play, though. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was. It was a wise move. Just, try, just trying to get himself out of the trouble a little bit. Yeah, I mean... Uh, you get what you pay for with these with these easy to come by. <laughs> they even bought him a hot dog. You know, they oh, had him in the, is it a uh, is it a hot dog or a burrito? I don't know. I thought it was a hot. Dog. I thought it was Chicago dog, but maybe uh, not. Maybe I was wrong. I maybe was I was wrong. I thought you and I were gonna have our second straight movie where the burrito, uh, like Bad News oh. Bears, comes into oh, play. There you go. That's right. I think it costs more than thirty cents in nineteen ninety three. Um. So this. Uh, so now he can't go back, right? He can't go back to the to the place because he knows that they're onto it. And we see him again in a different part of town, in like a motel, kind of you know, on the other side of the track. The other other side. He's already been on the other side of the tracks. Now he's kind of beyond. He's way out on the other side of the tracks. Um, so he's gone from like being in the neighborhood by USC. Now he's over by Cal State LA almost, you know. <laughs> in the men's only hotel, right? That's right. That's right. But he switched to the regarding Henry Harrison Ford look. He's got the tweed jacket and the blue dress shirt. That's right. Um, now, does he now, – so he's making these phone – so he's gotten the computer printout from the prosthetic, you know, to find out the one-armed man. Okay, who that prosthetics? And that's a funny scene. I don't know if either of you have ever done phone sales or cold calls, but it's so great to, to, to hear him. I think the first call he makes, the person's actually passed away, you know, and then – he makes a call for a guy who's actually in prison, but it's the wrong guy. And right. he shows up, and the guy's like, well, where you're here, we may as well talk. And he doesn't want to talk. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was uh, – what, what, uh, you, you mentioned his name earlier in the, in the, the, the podcast. That, that whole sequence is, is kind of fun. I think uh, any of us that have ventured through the minor league baseball ranks, we've made more cold calls than we care to mention. There you go. Oh. Gosh, <laughs> I I was I had to do cold calls out of the white pages. Oh, there you go. And you'd be amazed at the how many times you have to apologize for someone passing away. It was the tail end of landlines, and it was those were brutal calls. But you know, I was just trying to sell ticket packs. I wasn't trying to solve a murder. So Stakes were a little different. Although some some would say they were, they were, they were similar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Some would say they might be similar, you know. Uh, uh, but so the scene with the, when he gets the tweed jacket, ultimately it all leads to him finding where the one-armed man lives. And uh, and that that's an interesting thing. So he calls from a payphone and nobody answers. And it just shows you where technology has gone. He call, so you know the fact that he's called from a payphone and nobody's picked up. He feels safe enough to go to the house. Yeah, that was wild. That uh, we we've come so far that while I was watching it this week, I sort of lost a connection with what was going on in that moment. I was like, wait a minute, how did he end up at this place? And it was, and you're right, it's just because no one was there to answer the call. He was like, oh, good, it's okay, I can just I can just wander over there because if they don't answer the phone, then clearly there's no one in the house. That um. My my brain lost the connection on that, and again, I'm a little bit sleep deprived, so it's possible I'm just an <laughs> idiot. Uh, but there was there was something weird. I, I 
I, I was watching that scene. And I was like, how did we end up in this guy's house again? And it was just that it was it was as simple as what you just said. And that that blew my mind a little bit just thinking about it now. <laughs> and then he um, breaks the window and he goes in there and he's looking, obviously, for, for connections. He's looking for evidence. But, but the it, big it's boarded the, up, too. Sorry, I'm jumping back in. Uh, we are assume we, we are to assume that Sykes lives in this house. Why are there just mysterious two by fours across the door? It's a good question. I think it was like an attic window or something, wasn't it? Was it? Is that how we got in? Yeah, I think so. It's a side strange, window. Strange. Or, I, I was I was thinking a basement window or basement door or whatever. Um, but he makes the call, and this is one of the great Tommy Lee Jones scenes, his reaction scene. So I guess there've been a bunch of fake calls from fake Richard Kimballs coming into the Marshalls, and they finally pick up and they tell him, "Oh, it's another it's another Richard Kimball." And Gerard grabs the phone and realizes it's it's the it's the real Richard Kimball. And all of a sudden, then he becomes a third base coach. <laughs> waving a runner home in extra innings. He's he's gesticulating everywhere to get the phone the phone trace on. Yeah, and then they do the classic uh stretching it out signal to him <laughs> to get the that, that's maybe the most formulaic thing here is stretch it out so we can get that address. Yeah. Gotta have like thirty two seconds of phone call to trace right. it. And, and all of us and all of us who have no experience in tracing calls, but we've seen enough movies. We're like, yeah, you got to, you got to keep them on the line to get that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Got to get him talking. Got to get him talking. They did that at least 50 times in, in these, in the 24 series run, <laughs> like three per season. You got to make sure that you trace the call. You got him out. Got it. I think as, as 24 goes on, it's shorter in every, in every uh, season, it's like 45 seconds in the first season. And by the seventh, you only need to keep them on for like eight seconds. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's I, I I assume that's real. Someone that must have been a thing at some point in the past, right? Like did well, it, in did casino it one... in, in casino, don't they say that after forty seconds, if they're not talking about organized crime, they have they can't they can't keep that might have been that yeah. must have come after that or, or yeah. before. I don't know. Yeah, uh, all uh, of us we all are experts in surveillance due to uh, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. although, although now I guess surveillance rules have really been loosened up a little bit in the, in in recent years. Um, yeah, you don't even need to take a call. No. But long story short now, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they figure out, you know, so they, again, that it's Harrison Ford and, um, and um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones going back and forth over the phone about the scene, uh, uh, you know, uh, before he jumps in, before he jumps off the, uh, jumps off the bridge. Yeah, man, I would reminisce about that, too, if I was one of those two guys. That was a great scene. <laughs> That's a great point. Hey, man, you can do the Chris Farley. Hey, remember that time you jumped off a bridge? Yeah. That was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what did I tell you in the tunnels? Or whatever the line is. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And then he leaves the phone off the hook, so they didn't even need to stretch it out. Yeah. You said you didn't care, and he said, but yeah. you, were pointing, you were pointing my gun at me. <laughs> so it's, there's still there's still that thing. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you're you know, maybe there's a little doubt in here, but you were pointing the gun. So that, that gives me that gives me an upper hand. You're right. And but they, Richard, Richard Kimball does know the rules on tracing calls. So he leaves it off the hook. Yeah. Leaves it <laughs> off the hook. Yeah. He's a movie buff. <laughs> um, and it. it's, it's really close. It's six blocks. So he must have known how close they are. And of course, then the marshals descend upon this guy's apartment, and who comes walking up? It's the one-armed man. Yeah. And so I think, uh, going back to a question that you asked, I think this is the first 
kind of lull. They don't believe Nichols, but they don't. They can't really prove it. In this one, he's you know it's the Shakespeare doth protest too much. They start kind of grilling him because they find all these pictures. It doesn't really prove anything with that. You know, it's just kind of where there's smoke, there's fire. And he's really way too insistent that he wasn't in town that weekend. Yeah, but he also he brings up the pharmaceutical company. Yep. And a big fish. Yeah, and a big fish. And he handles all the security for their top executives. Yeah. <laughs> what, a cool, what a cool guy. Def, Devlin McGregor. Well, it's, just, a, it is, it's a weird it's just, flex, though, isn't it? Isn't that a really yeah. weird flex? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I was a cop, and I lost my arm in the line of duty, and now I, I watch uh, pharmaceutical executives on junkets. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Took me on a junket. Wasn't that the line yeah. or something? And there's a really subtle reaction from Tommy Lee Jones when he asked about Kimball. And instead of saying he doesn't know Kimball, he says, you don't see him in any of the pictures, you know. And there's yeah. a little fl- – if you watch Tommy Lee Jones, a little flinch, like kind of like kind of like the muscles kind of the, – the tension comes out of the muscles for just a second. And then obviously he walks out and says that this guy's dirty. And to me – Yeah, you don't crack wise to – Sheriff Gerard. It's the same thing. Uh, was in the in the train scene. Uh, Sheriff Rollins, who always plays the weak chinned guy in every movie he's in, uh, <laughs> he 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 drops a Wyatt Earp on him and then just gets buried. Yep, that was a bad mistake. Yeah, I, that that scene you're talking about is all or the moment where he looks at him. Even Sykes, I think, realized he had done something stupid in that moment because I think, and you guys might correct me here if I'm misremembering. I think he continues to talk after that little Tommy Lee Jones look where he's like, you don't see him in any pictures, do you? And he gives him the look and he says, no, you know, I don't know him. I, I'm, I'm. And then he says something like, dude, why is he why is he looking for you? Well, I'm a one armed man or something like that. He tries to backtrack a little bit. He pissed off the wrong guy. I think he realized it just from that tiny glance he got. And he knows he's in trouble now. But he's also still smart enough to know how to escape his own apartment. So. We can't, you know, we can't uh, under, uh, well, what am I, what am I looking for here? We can't undersell Sykes because he figures out a way out of his building just a few scenes later. Something none of us are able to do right now. So Sykes. Nice yeah. Work. Well done. Good work, Mr. Sykes. Yeah. Officer Sykes. Good work. Uh, but I do think this is the first kind of break in, um, in, you know, I think up until this point, uh, Gerard thinks Kimball unequivocally he is guilty, he's escaped, we gotta catch him he still thinks he's guilty at this point but now there might be more to it because why is Scott Sykes being all squirrely? Is this where they talk about Hinky? Which is a funny sequence with Daniel Roebuck yeah, Hinky is when they're going to see Clive Driscoll and they're waiting for the elevator and and, and the, he drops the line about uh, the, the river being green Why if they can die at green this day, how come they can't uh, dye it blue all the, the rest of the year? It's hanky. And, yeah. and, he, and he can tell uh, Gerard's perturbed, so he, so, you know, that's that sets him off, and he takes the stairs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, now, there, now there's there's the other scene where, obviously, you know, Richard Kimball is there, and that, that's that we, we referenced it earlier, when they find out Kimball is in the building, and they chase him down, and... Um, is this after now? Because because Dan, you mentioned the scene with the kid. Is yeah. This, is, is, so does the kid come in? Because yeah, he's still Desmondo at that point, right? 
Yeah. So we got to go back. We got to go back a little bit. So this is interesting to me because Julianne Moore is in the scene. She's, I think she's fantastic in the movie. And she's the fourth build actor in the movie. And she's only in that one sequence. Yeah, come she's very to fi- yeah. Come to find out there was actually supposed to be a little kind of a love story between the two of them. And again, Harrison Ford says, hey, this guy's on the run for murdering his wife and he's trying to prove himself innocent. Is it does it make sense that he would go pursue a relationship, you know? And again, when you work for Lucas and Spielberg, I guess you learned the thing or two, and they ended up dropping that whole that whole sequence. So she is the fourth build actor in the film, or fifth, might have been fifth, and she's only in that one sequence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if he had a, a love interest at that point, whether it predated the murder or just because they hit it off as Desmondo, Jose Ruiz, you know, I don't know. But... <laughs> That, to me, I'd be like, eh, I don't really care if he gets away with it now. Now, 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 yeah. I want him to go to jail. Why? why what, what's this all about? Yeah, Come on, his yeah. wife, his wife's still cold in the morgue. That, agreed. That would have been an even worse fit than a monologue in the tunnels. Yeah. So, all right, Dan, you brought it up, so I'll let you. I'll let you kind of pontificate on it. The little kid's chest hurts, and the the orderly, I guess, who's wor- working isn't really looking at the film or doesn't see it right. And you can see Richard Kimball, the janitor, standing there next muttering. to the kid. Yeah, yeah. Look, check the film. Check the film, he's muttering over and over again. The guy just starts to look at the film and then gets called away by something. Uh, I don't know. It's very busy at this hospital. And uh, I think, isn't that when... Uh, it, was a bus ac- it was another bus accident, wasn't it? Oh, was it? Yeah, I believe it was. So that would have that would have been probably a lot of people coming into a hospital at the same time. Yeah. Uh, Julianne Moore then asks him to just take the kid down to uh, not the operating room. I forget what she sends him to, but something for the kid to sort of mellow out for a while. Uh, and of course, then he checks the film, realizes that there's more going on, changes the order and takes him to OR and effectively saves the kid's life. So, again, I mean, you know, I think at this point. We as an audience have a pretty good idea that Richard Kimball is a good guy, but that's they're just adding another layer to that. And uh, and it fit because it was sort of while he was taking care of his other business. It didn't I don't know. I didn't strike me as out of place in any real way. It was just like, all right, I'm here. I mean, I'm going to say well, so it, it, it goes. It goes back to the scene in the train, regardless yeah. of the environment. He's still a doctor. And this this is now that that the, in the in the train, it's just kind of more a basic thing is, hey, this guy's alive. This is in his area of expertise. So that's why you see and I think it's great. It's a building of tension when he's saying, you know, hey, look at the film, look at the film, you know, because he knows exactly what to do in this situation. This is right. You know, this is right in his bailiwick, you know. Oh, yeah, no question. Um, I like this scene. I mean, if if you weren't sympathizing with Dr. Kimball at this point, you're you're a cold-hearted weirdo, but you certainly are now. So then obviously Julianne Moore finds out what's up, her character finds out what's going on, and he's trying to bluff his way out of it and he can't because she's a doctor too, so it kind of it's the back and forth, right? He's dealing with another physician who's very familiar with this terrain, and she tells him to stand there, takes his takes the poor Desmondo Jose Ruiz's uh name tag away and stalks away and tries to find it. And then he's gone. And then Richard Kimball is gone. And then of course we see later Gerard shows up and he's talking to the good doctor played by Julianne Moore. And I forget the line. It's like, so uh, you, you took his, you, you suspected he was, he was doing something weird and you took his ID badge 
And then she's obviously pretty exacerbated, uh, uh, exasperated, and they let her off the hook fairly easily at that point. Yeah, I think she says something like, oh, what did you want me to do? Yeah, yeah. I called security. That's what she <laughs> says. Yeah. I, I, but I can't see Julianne Moore and, and I and not think of other roles. And, and I just think Maude Lebowski would have handled Lebowski. it Lebowski. Oh, yeah. I knew you were going to say Lebowski. Yeah. Well, Maude, she's a doctor and thorough. And she's very thorough. Yeah. She, she, <laughs> so, but yeah, but you're right. She got like fourth billing. And so I, I think that goes back to your, uh, you, how many editors were there? Six. Yeah. She probably hates like five of them. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it was, I, I think that was the her first, like for big, you know, big studio role, if I'm not mistaken. She might have done. I know she did movies before that, but I think this was probably the biggest, the highest profile. And that's you know, it's it's the joke you always go like. And I have friends who are actors, so you know, you're in a movie and then you realize you're not in the movie. You know, <laughs> um, and it's funny. An actor friend told me that that that's how you can tell the person read the IMDb and didn't watch the movie, because I had a friend who's got a pretty prominent billing in a film, but he's only in one scene because they recut everything. Because there's an actor who's in the movie who was later fired from the movie, and all his scenes are in were, are with the actor who got fired. So oh. he ends up with just one scene. You know, he got paid. He's, he's not. He's not crying. They paid him for all the scenes he shot, and it was the be- I think it was his biggest payday of his career. And but when he later years later when he goes for auditions, he says, oh, I loved you in that movie, and he knows they're they're full of it because he's only in one quick scene. It was actually in um, the movie was Pitch Black, and he's oh. in Pitch Black for about thirteen seconds, and he's supposed to be in Pitch Black for about two minutes. But whenever somebody says they saw him in Pitch Black, they're like, eh, you didn't. Yeah. I mean, I think in Pitch Black, he walks across the room and kind of stares down and then is just out of the scene. So um, uh, anyway, uh, no, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. It was it was the se- what, what is the sequel called? It's Chronicles of Riddick is what it was. Because uh. Pitch Black wasn't a studio movie. Chronicles of Riddick was a studio movie. Um, but getting back to Julianne Moore. Uh, I just yeah. love Vin Diesel in, in all of the above. That's all I know about those films. That's right. Vin Diesel, yeah. Um, so let's go to the chase. It's interesting because I remember the chase through the St. Patrick's Day parade being a little more epic than it really was when I rewatched it. It's really the the the, the epic part of the chase is as one of you mentioned when he's shooting the, the the bulletproof glass and he kind of pulls his foot through the door, kind of that battleship Potemkin moment, or you know that the where the the carriage kind of comes down the stairs. Just he's got to get that last foot out of the door and move on. And it just shows you how everything kind of moves a little bit slowly. And uh, he gets away from the marshals yet again. Yeah, that was Steve who who mentioned uh, Gerard still taking, I think, four shots at him through that glass. That was not that wasn't one try. That was a bunch of tries. He even cocks his head like the RCA dog because he's like, really? (laughs) Those first two shots didn't get you? (laughs) I'm surprised he didn't shoot at his foot. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and someone's on the roof of the hospital, right? They're spotting him as he yeah. runs. Uh, yes, that's when they drop the Picasso line. Yeah, he run, that's uh, that, that's the that's true north in Chicago. Apparently, it's, it's towards the Picasso. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. I was like, he's running. That's all I needed to know. Um, the but next yeah, big no, yeah, Gazal, you let you left us a a, a, a tapestry here that we got to finish sewing. Uh, the, yeah, the, 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 the parade is, is kind of a little anticlimactic. He takes off his jacket, he steals a hat out of a garbage can and 
when Samuel Gerard is starting to get kind of close, he just cuts out of the parade and that's it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen to remember like that you know, it was it was like a you know like the game, you guys are both baseball guys. You know the game in the ballpark where they put up the three hats, it was like the three card Monty on the video board. That's yeah. what I thought it was. They're chasing him down and they kind of see that he has a hat. And my recollection was they find a guy in the hat and it's not Richard Kimball. But that might have been from a different movie. But yeah, I watched it yesterday and he kinda of just kinda of ditches the jickes the jacket, ditches the jacket, and he's got the, the, the plastic cap which he's picked up out of the garbage. Yeah. And uh, kind of drifts off out of the uh, the the main morass of the parade uh, on St. Patrick's Day in Chicago, which didn't you know um, really amount to 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 much of a set oh. piece because they, they already had the set piece with the shooting of the of the uh, of the bulletproof doors. You do see. Sorry, go ahead, Steve. Oh, it just always bugs me though because he takes off the jacket, but you don't see him drop it. No, where'd it go? Then, and then the next scene, he's in his blue uh, zip up. And he's peeling out of the of the parade. Where'd the jacket go? Where did the jacket go? Uh, uh, continuity I, department. I liked the end of the scene when you see uh, Tommy Lee Jones trying to jump and see over the crowd. As yeah, if the fellow small person, I can sympathize. You know what's funny, though? When I was young, I'm like, oh, God, that's sad. Old man jumping. And now I'm like, Tommy Lee Jones got some hops. Yeah. Try yeah. <laughs> He's trying to get a look before he's in, he boot, really he's in boots and Wranglers, and he gets that thing. He gets up there, <laughs> yeah. and generally a full suit and tie throughout the entire yeah. film. He's well dressed deputy marshal. Yeah, that was the height of the kind of the fly in the flannel rock and roll, like ninety three, ninety four, ninety five. So I'd be out at you know we'd be out at the venue every weekend, kind of pogoing up and down. So maybe Tommy Lee Jones got practice going to punk clubs, you know. You know he he's he. It's funny because he's this hard nosed guy, and you think he's no nonsense, but there's a bit of a preener in him. The red scarf and the, oh, yeah. and the red cardigan. He's a bit of a preener. Oh, the scarf is lovely because there yeah. is the one scene where he's got to get in through security and he has to pull the scarf to the side to show his badge. That right. was lovely. Yeah, and the red cardigan in the office, the office cardigan. And we're not talking, this is not, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers' cardigan. They, they, they mean business. He did, <laughs> he, did, he did room with Al Gore in college. Keep yeah. that in mind, you know. A little, little bit of an aristocrat, you know. He yeah. is from Arkansas, but a little bit of the aristocracy rolls off. So this is the part of the movie where we kind of really push towards the, the – we learn about the the ultimate scene. So he's figured out that Devlin McGregor's involved, and then all these people kind of come in you know, to help him. Obviously, Nichols has already helped him, and it helped him a second time when he hooks him up with Bones. We have Jane Lynch. She has her yeah. big scene with him. Um you know, as, as a young actress in Chicago. And so he's kind of trying to figure out the cells. And I, Jane Lynch reveals it, right? That yeah. They're, 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 they're basically all cells from the same person. And then all the, the approvals were signed after Lentz was already dead, after Charles Nichols has told him Lentz is dead in a car accident. Yeah, that was, that was, that was fun that she got to have the big reveal there. I, I assume she's a pathologist. I didn't put the pieces together, but she's reading the slides. Yeah. Uh, but she does. She lines it out for us a little bit, which is that. By the way, that's a uh, that's a scene that a lot of movies mess up hard. The the help the audience along scene. Sometimes they do it in a way that makes the audience feel kind of stupid if you weren't getting it to that point. But I thought they did it in a way that was kind of fun. Like they celebrated figuring it out together, and so I never felt like a dummy that I hadn't like understood that what i was looking at when they show you a slide of liver cells mm -hmm. 
Well, what's interesting, I make this point about this movie. The the best movie I've seen in my life about exposition, and you know, there's exposition in every movie, and it seems it gets a little more obtuse as we deeper get into it. The best movie ever is um, Back to the Future. Because every time they start into exposition, something happens and they have to leave it and move on. And The Fugitive is actually pretty good because yeah. every time they give a little bit of exposition, the marshals get a little bit closer to Richard Kimball and he needs to kind of – he needs, again, to keep moving on. And a similar thing happens here. You get a lot of exposition when he goes back to the hospital, but he can never get comfortable, so you're okay with it. You know, uh, Training Day is a very similar movie, and the rule, as I was told, is – you got to have coincidence. If you got to have a coincidence in the movie, make sure it works against the protagonist until the end. You're allowed one that it can work for him. And that's, you know, training days, basically that every coincidence works against Ethan Hawke till the end. It's not quite that way in this, but because Richard Kimball has a degree of expertise, you're going to let certain things go and certain things not go. And they know which choices to make. Obviously the, the production People who do the production, the writer, the director of this movie, they know which choices to make where it's still credible. And I think, Dan, your point is, is well taken, particularly in that scene with Jane Lynch. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, one of my least favorite exposition moments in a film, and it came from uh, Minority Report. Mm -hmm. There's there's a scene, I think it's with like a lady in a in a botany shack or something where they just like basically hand you the the entire uh, plot of the film. And you're just like, oh, okay, so do I need to watch anything else? I mean, are we good here? Can we wrap it up? Uh, There's V for Vendetta, which I love, but it has a whole, it has a scene in the same vein where where he's just going, well, imagine if this happens. And he's <laughs> it's like, well, did it happen or not? Like, what? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. And this is 10 whole minutes of this. Yeah, it's brutal. That's it's hard. So you, to get it right, I think is a big feather in their cap. So another kudos to the fugitive. Yeah, you, you know, you got to give just enough, and, and this is a real subtle thing. It's the difference between a good movie and a mediocre movie is you want to give just enough information to keep it going. And we talked about this. Which, that's why sports movies are so great. Like you know, we were talking, we Hurst and I were talking about Bull Durham, and it's like they give you just enough information to get by. But if you're a baseball fan, you read – and you guys are both minor league baseball guys. You can read so much more into it, but they give you enough to go by. Now, this is a little – The Fugitive is a little different movie because it is by definition a thriller, and it's very specific because we know what it's about, right? The, the answer to the whole plot's going to come whether these cells are legitimate or not legitimate, whether the, the, the drug is legitimate or not legitimate. And that's, what, that's the information that we need to get to the audience. They need to get to the audience, and this is kind of our step one. So now it's a matter of we know how long is it going to be until Tommy Lee Jones and his you know merry band of men and women figure out what we already know. So this is a point in the film where the audience, you know, Steve, Dan, and myself, we're actually ahead of the people in the movie. And you got to be careful with that too. You can't do that too much in a movie. And I think obviously with the fugitive, they get it just right. Yeah, just right. Tommy Lee Jones figures it out. I mean, what, yeah, moments later. Like yeah. oh he was spotted going into the Hilton uh, Plaza Mall or something and Tommy's like ah you want to you want to guess where he's going or something like that so yeah. he's he's not far behind us yeah there there are tiny clues in this movie that you you notice on like the nine hundredth watching and uh, thank you TBS for all those years of putting it on continuous loop <laughs> but when uh, when Tommy Lee Jones is interviewing Nichols. 
and the scene uh, you talked about, uh, Gazal, about how, oh, he's smarter than I am, that stuff. Yeah. There is a brochure for Devlin McGregor sitting on the table right in front of Tommy Lee Jones. So it's one of those, it's like, yeah, I didn't notice that the first 900 times, but nailed it. Yep. They could have ended the movie right there. They could have got a seventh editor. Am I, ge- <laughs> am, am I guessing, Steve, that that's a lot of minor league baseball hotel room nights when that was on, when, on loop? I just think it's being a loser. <laughs> no, I just, I just, I was trying to draw out a little bit of an environmental in this podcast because when I'm on the road in a hotel room, I don't like to watch anything new because I'm, my focus there is on the game that I'm calling, whether it be baseball or basketball. So I'll find something, and usually it's invariably on USA, TBS, or TNT, although not as much recently. Just like something, a movie I've seen that's fairly, I'll have it on in the background while I'm doing work if I'm not watching a game or ESPN or something. That, the Fugitive to me is, and, and there's a few movies like this, but The Fugitive is one that anytime, if, if it was on TV, I stopped and watched. That was it. You know, it wasn't, yeah. I'll flip around. Oh, The Fugitive's on. Yeah, that, yeah. that'll do. That'll yeah. do. Yeah. Or we're at the hotel now. And Dan, Dan, you, you have a vague, you have a science background, right? Yeah, putting putting yeah. it to good use these days with. Well, the, no, no, no. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's it's up to you. It's like you know, like knowledge is like money. You know, I'm never going to judge anybody on how they use their knowledge or how they use their money. You earned it. You got it. And what's Bobby Brown's line? You know, I made this money. You didn't. So you have the knowledge. And I know you know your wife obviously Jessica's a doctor, so you probably have these conversations at the dinner table with little <laughs> Asher there, learning about cells and pathology and all that stuff. Um, uh, did anything kind of. Did anything kind of ring incongruent to you in terms of the actual, you know, the, the stuff they talked about with regard to the research and the provasic and all that stuff? I don't know. You know, I mean, they they named the drug. It sounded like something that you would hear on a, uh, you know, a commercial during The Price is Right. So that all fit for. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't I don't really know how clinical trials work, to be perfectly frank. So, uh, th- you know, I think uh, Dr. Kimball explains it a little bit. I don't remember who he's talking to. It might have even been I don't think it's during his his chat with with Nichols, but it might be as we're ramping up here towards the the big moment um, where he talks about how he took samples and sent them one place and then they got switched and then verified. Um, but you know what? I mean, we're we're in a time right now in 2020 where there's a lot of uh, market worship that's going on. And that was sort of a, an undertone in this where Devin McGregor was willing to do anything to make sure that their company turned profit and their stock went up. And that's, that's where we're at here. So again, you know, yeah. Steve talked about it a few times earlier, like we're at a moment where, you know, from a doctor's standpoint, I, you know, I have no idea how these things work, but they were like, look, I sent a sample to this guy and he switched it. I, I can't imagine it's that easy in real life, but it certainly was here. Uh, and a, and a, a prominent doctor in, in Nichols put his career on the line to because he felt like the the reward was worth what would be a horrible risk isn't the surgery at the very beginning of the movie for someone with complications from that drug yeah that, and that's that, that that's we, we never get a resolution on that that's very good that's another uh, that's another yeah. exposition it gives us just enough of what we need but we don't actually get a resolution on that so the problem now is there's the ticking clock because sykes has figured out he needs to go get richard kimball And so now, you know, Richard Kimball's already being hunted by Gerard, and now he's got to worry about Sykes coming after him, and he goes back to the L train, 
And there's the great confrontation between Sykes and Kimball in the L train when he's tracking them down. And we don't know. Now, we know Sykes is talking to somebody. We kind of all have our suspicions as to who he's talking to. But he's coming after Richard Kimball right now. And they have this confrontation in which a, one of the bystanders happens to be a police officer. And he becomes collateral damage on the he's, train. He's, he's, all, he's a janitor. We all know he's a janitor. This is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's actually I know him as one of the uh construction workers in Major League. Oh yeah, of course. Forgot about that. Yeah. So we've just summed up his entire life. And good, man. fugitive major league and scrubs, I'm good with that. <laughs> what I love about the what I love about that scene is the punch. It's a total Harrison Ford punch yeah. to end that sequence when he takes Sykes down. Yeah. <laughs> There's a there's a lot of body movement in those Harrison Ford punches. I love it. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. train inertia and and uh, an Indiana Jones windup. <laughs> <laughs> precisely, precisely. Sykes is out of commission now. He's been handcuffed to a train, and now Richard Kimball's going to head to the hotel, and he's going to confront Charles Nichols, who we now know is somewhat of a nefarious figure. He was kind of a shady, kind of in between. Is he, you know, what, what's the? It's from uh, from one of the Godfather movies. Only so and so can reach between. I think it's Godfather Three can reach between the two worlds of the Pope and the and the, and the mafia. Well, now we learn that Charles Nichols is the guy that's reaching between the two worlds. On one hand, he's helping. Richard Kimball. On the other hand, he's working against Richard Kimball, obviously, to kind of keep himself out of it. The one thing, and a number of people have bought this up. I had this thought, but I've heard it from a number of people, and I was reading the reviews, a bunch of people bought it up, is that it's Charles Nichols that supposedly calls Bones to have the samples ready for Richard Kimball. And there's two arguments to this. Well, one, why doesn't he just tell Gerard he's going to go meet Bones and they bust him there? Or... Why doesn't he just direct Bones to the wrong samples to throw Kimball off the beaten path? Yeah. That's, I, those are both legitimate questions. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know either. I, th- I think uh, that he likely is just simply feeling like if I can keep him at arm's length, uh, you know, it, it won't get back to me. Uh, but, yeah, another – in this place where we're at, though, in the story – uh, one thing they did a good job of also was the, you know, that we're, we're talking about the transit cop. Uh, he gets shot and killed. And yeah. that the, the stress ramps up even more because now he's a cop killer. And you know that the Chicago PD, who's already been not exactly painted with the best brush in this thing. Now it's going to be what our expectation is that you kill a cop. It's going to be rabid dogs on this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And they already... When they when he re when he re enters Chicago, they have the press conference with the cop, and they always talk about the esteem we hold this scumbag in. It's the line yeah. from the guy who's right. a character actor we've seen in a hundred different movies, and he has the line about that. So we already know they don't hold them in great esteem, and now this this dead police officer is going to be attributed to Richard Kimball, not Sykes, until they find things out later. But um, so at this point, Richard Kimball and he 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 gives no you know what's. And he's gone total gangster. He's gone rogue. He's going to go and interrupt Charles Nichols in the middle of his speech. And I think you guys are both – I'm not a big John Mulaney guy, but I had to go watch. And there's a bit that John Mulaney does centered around this exact scene. It's great, isn't it? Did you love it? I did. It was funny. Yeah, it was funny. <laughs> I, 
I laughed so hard at that because it's exactly like the what I was talking about. Where if this is on, you have to watch it. Like you, you can't. The the fugitive just becomes burned into your memory. Like mm-hmm. you can't not quote it. You can't not uh, think about it. And he's talking about you know the uh, that that particular ballroom, if I'm not mistaken. That's yeah. what prompts the the story. The story, right? Uh, yeah, I Melanie nailed that one, no doubt. Crushed it. Yeah, the whole premise of the Mulaney bit basically is that he's trying to tell another story and he yes. ends up basically just telling the entire story of the plot the of the fugitive. Yeah, instead, because it's so awesome, he can't get back to his own story in far less time than us. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I'm, 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 we're, we're, no, no, we're no, this. no, no. It's good. It's good. <laughs> but the, the thing for me is so, you know, and again, we, we see when we talk about the wits, and this is a thriller about wits. When Gerard is matched in wits with uh, Harrison Ford in this scene, though, uh, Charles Nichols has to me his high moment in the movie when he kind of calms everything down and tells people to get back to their coffee and dessert. You know, <laughs> like, dude, you you've been implicated. Basically, you you set up this guy's wife to be killed. OK, he's figured it out. He's come to expose you in front of everybody that you guys both know and respect. And you're calm enough to say, guys. Let me take care of this. You guys eat your pie and drink your coffee, and we're going to come right back. That That is grace under pressure, gentlemen. That is some grace under pressure. Settle settle down. You're being irrational, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, It reminds me of that scene in The Usual Suspects when they talk about how you can always tell who's guilty because they're the ones that get some sleep at, in, in their prison cell. Right? <laughs> yes. Charles Nichols is just like, all right, well, I guess this is it, so – you know, let's do this. Let's do this uh, roof and then laundry level chase, and let's see how this thing shakes out. The the uh, the MC is not as calm. No, <laughs> listen, listen. But so so let's let's be honest, guys. The whole point of this podcast was so the three of us could talk about Charles Nichols and how damn evil Charles Nichols is. And to me, so my favorite villain of all time is probably Hans Gruber from from Die Hard. You know. And I talked, you know, there are film people I talked to who said, you know, Alan Rickman's portrayal just opened the door to these great villain roles. Now, like actors wanted to play, prominent actors wanted to play these great villain roles. And we already kind of talked about the trajectory of this role. But, I mean, uh, Jerome Cabe, or however you pronounce it, is just amazing. He not only, like, plays Charles Nichols, he inhabits Charles Nichols in every bit of his, you know, kind of gray area shadiness. Um and just obviously it comes to it comes to it comes to a, a you know the culmination in this in this hotel the see the hotel sequence from the cool calm Charles Nichols at the beginning to the guy who is desperately does not want Richard Kimball to be exonerated because then he knows it's going to fall on him. Well, listen, because all you hosted this thing, so I think you get to say this seminal line from Doctor Kimball. Someone has to say it. Go ahead, Dan. I'll I'll, I'll leave the leave the door no, open to you. Know. No, no, I can't do it. I'm a guest on this. I'm a guest on this show. This is this is good well, at all. Well, I mean, I, you know, uh, I I just I mean, how evil is this guy? This guy is just I mean, you know, it's one thing to you know, open fire on people. It's another thing to kind of defraud people and commit violent crime. But this guy, he, you know, it's almost like he is. Um, like uh, uh, he's a villain out of Socrates when, you know, Socrates, you know, pot, the worst villains are the ones who look like they're there to do good, but are really the whole time 
doing their uh, uh, running their own agenda behind the scenes. You know that that and being that's, said, that being said, it's a botched murder. They were going to kill him, weren't they? Right. Yeah. Then so we find I mean, that out. yeah. So I mean, it's you know, so it's it's not necessarily that he's a criminal mastermind. He's just trying to keep uh, keep uh, twenty four hours ahead of the creditors. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I know. He, he, you know. Um, now, the other part of the other aspect of it is now, uh, as we mentioned, the corrections officer, the the transit cop is dead, and so now the marshals and the Chicago police are both in pursuit of Richard Kimball. Um, and so Gerard shows up. They obviously know that this thing is going on, and now they show up as well. So it's kind of just a, uh, everything's coming to a head here at this hotel in the ballroom. Do it, Dan. You switch the samples. Also, <laughs> <laughs> so Devlin McGregor could give you Provasic. R U D ninety or ninety. Yeah. And Devlin, and Devlin yeah. McGregor could give you Provasic. Provasic. The hand wave is yeah. a fantastic. But it's yeah. it's the great Harrison Ford hand wave. Yeah. Yep. While well, trying to do the, the the kills me is he's kind of trying to do a Chicago accent. While he's doing the hand way, it is everything's cut. Kind of, it's just it's just the epic levels of Harrison Fordness in that scene. He channels that that voice like once per film, and everybody loves that moment because yes. it's great. It's get off my plane. It's yes, Vasic. It's what you know. All those mo- it's, the best it's, one is Patriot is the Patriot Games, <laughs> where where he tells Richard Harris that he will effing end him. <laughs> So good. So damn good. And that's, of course, the the whole John Mulaney bit there, too. Uh, but Gazal, looping back around to your thing, you get into that next sequence. And um, I know we're probably coming up on the end of the of the end of the show here um, where Tommy Lee Jones radios down to get the helicopter off the roof because he, quote, I don't want to get shot. And that right. sort of that kind of dissipates things again. That that then creates just the four main guy is it four or five does he have both of his assistants with him at that point i think it's just cosmo right yeah, I think, yeah. yeah. okay so it's just the four of them and then he gets he gets a <laughs> cudgel to the face hey uh, you want to uh, talk about nichols being a bad guy though he's a bad man he's not just playing tennis at the tennis club he's lifting how heavy are hotel chairs <laughs> and yeah. he crushes <laughs> richard kimball with one <laughs> <laughs> he throws that giant pipe at uh, at cosmo too but, or the why the, is there a, i've never worked the in, a, in an industrial laundry but why is there like a hanging eye beam oh a lot of beams oh guys i gotta complain about one thing before the end of this show does it drive you guys as crazy as it drives me that the third yellow dangling loop hits tommy lee jones in his ear you that drives crazy you know what's funny is when i was watching it yesterday i'm like one of these hits him which one is it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Right on his weird little ear. Why didn't he dodge that one? Yeah, I, mean, I could, I could see Newman getting hit by it. It doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah. He just bangs into the one damn dangling yellow thing. Uh, Come on, man. Uh, yeah, that drives me crazy, and I know that's such a silly thing, but I'm so glad that you saw it too, Steve. Yeah. How many editors? Come on, guys. Yeah. 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 yeah there you go. Um, but th- there's a couple of elements here. So they get up on the roof, and um. They're obviously they're shooting 
at Kimball, but obviously, you know, you already mentioned that Gerard is like, hey, he doesn't want to get shot off there. And then obviously there's the Nichols aspect to it. You know, Nichols is also fighting for his life and they both kind of fall down through the roof um, down into that laundry area, which I think is always a great, you know, whenever you have a fight in a laundry room, man, that, that, that that's great stuff. That's just really great stuff, particularly when you have all that real estate the way they had. It's a whole floor of laundry at a, at a major hotel. You know, you know they, not, they knocked out without a ton of actual person to person contact. It's a lot of like hidden attacks in the laundry area. There's yeah. the, the, the beam to Cosmo's face. And then uh, Nichols is going to shoot Gerard and yeah. Harrison Ford clubs him with a pipe twice. And yeah. that's basically yeah. it. Yeah. Except for the hand to hand combat between. Nichols and Kimball, right. they actually uh, stay within the parameters of social distancing. They're pretty much six <laughs> feet away from each other, except for the little hand to hand between yeah. Nichols and uh, and Harrison Ford. And, right. this is the, and this is again, this is the one thing for me is that when they get down to the physical confrontation, and you're right, I mean Charles Nichols holds his own, but going into it, you don't think there's any way he'll hold his own against Richard Kimball. Although maybe the fatigue factor works in because Kimball's been running and Nichols has been sleeping in a, in a warm bed every night for the whole last month and a half. That's right. Dessert and coffee is is right. treating well. He might not have got it, though. You know, everyone else got the dessert and coffee. He was working. That's true. He was keynote speeching. Right. <laughs> keynoting. Keynoting up on stage. So then obviously, you know, the, the famous, the final kind of tense scene where, you know, Nichols has more or less been vanquished. Poor Cosmo's taken a beam to the face. And now it's down to, you know, just like we always have it, it's Gerard and it's, it's Richard Kimball. And finally... You know, Gerard spits out everything that we've kind of learned throughout that he's figured out. And, hey, I figured it out. I know you're innocent, Richard, you know. Um, but before he does that, he's trying to get him to surrender. And so it's kind of a, you know, and it reminded me a little bit of, you know, uh, because of the sequester, you know, ESPN had the old, uh, the, the Ezra Edelman OJ series on, on. And it reminded me a little bit of listening to the police officers there we're talking with Simpson before he surrendered himself, you know, the, the great chase. And it was really similar. Like they're like, they were talking about the psychology of it. They're like, Oh, when I heard him say this, I knew I needed to say this. And you know, these guys are, you know, LAPD for 30 years, they've been doing all this profiling. So that's a little bit we get from Tommy Lee Jones is he's kind of reeling in Kimball because he's first kind of threatening. He's like, Hey, the Chicago police think you're a cop killer. This is not going to end well. You need to surrender to me. And then as he gets deeper into it, it's, oh, I know you're innocent. Now, my question would be, why wouldn't you just lead with the fact that, hey, Richard, I know you're innocent, you know? Well, he's, yeah, he's got to be good cop. He's been bad cop. Now he's good cop. But, yeah, you're right. Why? Yeah, what, you, you have been very much uh, economical with your uh, with your words to this point, And now you now you're doing the soliloquy and you're letting Richard or you're le- letting uh, Nichols, Dr. Nichols, hear all this, too. So you're playing your hand a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's probably why Nichols is like, oh, you know, I better yeah. shoot this son of a gun too. Yeah, right. Yeah. So right. maybe it's maybe it's to twist the knife in the back of Charles Nichols a little bit. You think he's that, hey that hey Charles, I'm on to your ruse. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it seems a little unnecessary, actually. It's like they are, maybe are. Yeah. No. He calls. Yeah. He calls. <laughs> yeah. No forced entry. He had your keys, Richard. Yeah, when he says no forced entry, it's like, uh, oh, okay, good. Yeah, okay, yeah, no, that, that, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm now I'm covered. That's that seems like a pretty re- normal thing to yell to somebody across a room. 
No, <laughs> no forced entry. Uh, but you know, I got over it pretty quick, as I'm sure yeah. you did. Sure, <laughs> but it's, it's great how you know an hour, exactly an hour into the film, Charles Nichols says he's smarter than me. You know, and maybe it's to throw them off, and we find out later that you know, yeah, this guy is—he's a little bit smarter than Charles Nichols. And he had everything working against him, but he still got Nichols. Yeah. So, okay. Got him. Got him with the brains, and got him with two strikes of a lead pipe. Yeah. That yeah. happened to just be laying there. Yep. Also part of the laundry room. Normal. You know, you gotta fluff. <laughs> gotta 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 agitate your laundry with lead pipe. I can just see him. They get this rug. They're like, we can't wash this. Nah, I hit it with a lead pipe. <laughs> they were playing. They were playing a real life game of Clue in the laundry floor. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. But uh, yeah, I, again, and then obviously there's the great scene at the end when he's led to the he's led to the uh, the car. And he's in the car with Gerard, and you know, Tyler Lee is just fantastic in that in that in that final scene. Yeah. Well, I love everything from the the end of Charles Nichols to through that final scene. And one of the lines that, that I had mentioned in, in one of our side conversations was that when when Tommy Lee Jones, he does his, you know, it's a, it's over, Richard. You know, I'm glad, he yeah. says. <laughs> I need the rest. It's like, yeah. okay. Yeah, we're... Yeah. Oh, good. Samesies. Yeah, we're all pretty pooped, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just love when he breaks out the Little League, uh, the Little League uh, first aid kit ice pack for his wrists. Oh, that's beautiful. I love what that. What is that? I don't know. Where did it come from? <laughs> Why is it? I can just imagine it was in the back of, of, of the uh, someone's trunk. You know, no, it's like it was in the some flares. No, Steve, yeah. it was a pouch on the back of the seat that we used to have in the 90s where everybody had their right. Tommy guides. He had a little crack your ice pack open <laughs> yeah. thing there. And a flare. <laughs> And a flare. Uh, <laughs> it, it probably wouldn't have worked at the tandem of my tie or something. So he had to hand him something. But right. uh, I mean, yeah, just such such a great movie. But he's like, uh, hey, I jumped off a bridge, but my these handcuffs are really chafing my wrists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does take the handcuffs off. That is interesting. Yes. Yeah, he yeah. takes the handcuffs off, kind of symbolically to say, hey, it's all good. But you know, things aren't very good for Richard Kimball. His wife is still dead. Yeah. You know? And who knows what happened to his property? He's been in prison. What arrangements were made? Um, so he's going to probably have to sleep in an unfamiliar place that evening anyway. I'm guessing his assets are frozen, as wealthy nice. as he was. He got over it because he needed one last one-liner, and so did we. You said you didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. I still don't. I, I still, I still don't. don't. Still don't. <laughs> yeah, but then yeah. he laughs. He laughs at that point. Yeah. I'm, he puts his arm kind of around him. Not yeah, around, yeah. around, but like behind around. Like, yeah. it's Like it's the like, first aid hey, movie theater move. Yeah. Hey, good game. Good game. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> and that's it. Yeah. It's yeah. why do, but when they, he flips that U-turn and then like a thousand pedestrians decide to cross. <laughs> they, I think the extras weren't getting paid anymore. Yeah. <laughs> what a crazy night that was what a crazy night that yeah, was. Yeah. You, yeah you think if they see each other on the street they'll be like oh man that was nuts and then he <laughs> and then nichols was all and i was all and then yeah i hit him with a pipe you remember that <laughs> wait the cop car's still coming guys <laughs> now this it's, the funny thing about this movie is it's been talked about 
I guess they did do a TV series about it short, like maybe in 2000 or so. Um, but they've talked about a couple of different incarnations of maybe doing a remake of the movie and then also doing like one of those. So now, you know, I, I just finished watching the, there's a series on Hulu based on the movie High Fidelity, which is based on the novel by Nick Hornby, something that kind of a treatment to the fugitive. But um, one note that I did read was that um, one of the, the uh, before they got Harrison Ford, the person they were thinking about playing Richard Kimball was Alec Baldwin, you know, which ironically enough later, you know, they both play the role of Jack Ryan. Um, right. So I wonder who they would use to be Richard Kimball now if they were to remake the movie now. Hmm. Maybe still Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah, he's still doing Han Solo. And uh, and Indiana Cole, Jones, right? Yeah, doing them all still. Yeah. All right, we're After up, we're up against, action. we're up against the clock, guys. So just before we sign off, both appreciate both you guys jumping in. Give me the final thoughts on the 1993 classic, The Fugitive. Dan, we'll let you start. Oh, just, I mean, I gotta echo what Steve said. This is one of those ones when anytime it's on, it's worth watching. It's still so good. Tommy Lee Jones, Harrison Ford, both brilliant in their roles, funny in a way that you you wouldn't expect in the type of movie that it is. Uh, it's one that to me, you, you anybody that hasn't seen it, I would be excited to watch it with them for their first time because I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, and also shout out to the whoever made the creative decision to do the murder sequence with inverted black and white colors at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Very. Yeah, that was a little nineties. Uh, you think, uh, I, there, there's not a ton of parallels in these two, these two movies, but they're of the same era and I adore them so much. Uh, this movie and midnight run to me are, they are so similar, even though they're not, they're like fraternal twins to me somehow. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) but there's something about them and it's, it's, it's the, the fact that there's a relationship between these two guys, but it's not, it's, it's, it is, they are not getting along, obviously, you know, they are, they are meant to be polar opposites, but in the end they come to, uh, to a conclusion that's, that's amenable. And, uh, uh, but they're very much of their era, but they still hold up, uh, much like all of us from that era. We, we, uh, we're very much of it, but we still hold up. Thanks, guys. So if you want to catch Dan Besbris, you go to uh, hoop-ball.com, or then he's at Dan Besbris on, on Twitter, yeah, B-E-S-B-R-I-S. And then Steve Went, you can go to the Inland Empire 66er website. No games for a while, but you got a nice photo of him on the website. <laughs> and then he's at Steve Went. Uh, is, you have an underscore or no? Yeah, at Steve underscore Went with a yeah, D. Yeah, on Twitter. The silent Both, D. Uh, both good guys. I mean, Steve's still in the Cal League. Dan is out of the Cal League, so that Cal League umbrella continues. Oh, hey, thank you're you never guys. Out. Never out. He's yeah. A, Kick it out the game. Emeritus. <laughs> thank both you guys. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Gazal. Awesome. Provasic.